Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is the fifth message in our fall 2020 series, The Politics of Jesus, Following Christ in the American Empire. If you've been following this series, you know that we've been giving serious thought to what it looks like to embrace the agenda of Jesus and embody his way of radical love as we seek to navigate this election season by letting the Messiah from Nazareth lead us. If you've missed any of the messages in this series, I'd encourage you to go back and listen since this series builds upon itself each week. Last Sunday, I gave a message entitled The Patience and Empathy of Exiles. We looked at the subversive faith of the early church how they embodied the messianic agenda, and how they patiently persevered in the Jesus way. We also saw how their message and living attracted the lower classes of society, particularly the most vulnerable, the disenfranchised, and the marginalized. What I didn't say last week, which I'd like to draw your attention to today, is that if anyone understands the power of the gospel and the wisdom of patient endurance amidst suffering and hardships, It is our black brothers and sisters in Christ. As a people, they have known great suffering and oppression in this country. Of course, I'm speaking of slavery, America's original sin, and the ongoing struggle for equality and fight against racism in the U.S. And what is utterly amazing to me is that African Americans still chose and choose to accept Jesus and the Christian faith, which was first the religion of their white masters. And yet they were able to see through the demonic distortion of white supremacy and the evil done in the name of Christ, justified by the Bible, and then discover the Jewish Jesus who himself suffered and died by the hands of his oppressors. I imagine this is also partly what baffled the German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he visited Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem in the 1930s. His experience of this black church and the rapturous passion of these oppressed believers influenced him to ultimately return to Nazi Germany instead of staying in America and teaching. He returned to Germany and he joined the Christian resistance movement to Hitler and served as an ally to the Jewish people. Therefore, if we want to know what it means to follow Jesus, as Bonhoeffer learned, it's important for us to listen and for us to learn from the perspectives and experiences of the marginalized, to look at the powerless, not the powerful, to let those on the margins be our teachers, to let them reveal Christ to us and let them show us what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit and embody the way 
of Jesus. Which is why I'm excited about our guest speaker today who graciously agreed to speak into the Politics of Jesus series and encourage us to follow a marginalized Messiah. So let me introduce you to my friend Dennis Edwards. Dennis Edwards is currently Associate Professor of New Testament at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. He's the author of several books. His most recent book is called Might from the Margins, The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice with Harold Press. Dennis has 30 years of urban pastoral ministry experience. He most recently served as senior pastor of the Sanctuary Covenant Church in Minneapolis. Prior to that, he was the founding pastor of Peace Fellowship Church in Washington, D.C. And before that, he was founding pastor of New Community Church in Brooklyn, New York. I first learned of Dennis and his ministry through my friend and mentor, Greg Boyd. Uh, Greg partnered with Dennis in, in the area, in Minneapolis area, on, on, to confront racial justice. And uh, that was, of course, when Dennis was pastoring there. Since then, I've ran into Dennis at conferences. I've followed his writings and heard him preach a couple of times, which is why I know that you will be challenged and inspired by the message today. So grab your Bible and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, and let's prepare our hearts to receive the word our brother Dennis is bringing to us on listening and learning from the marginalized in a message entitled, Might from the Margins. Brothers and sisters, Dennis Edwards. Hello, friends. I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you. I'm grateful to Pastor Flowers for giving me this opportunity. What a unique and challenging time that we're living in. And I didn't even say unprecedented. Well, I guess I just did. But many Christians are focusing on the logistics of doing church during a pandemic, or whether or not we can gather inside of a building. But I know lots of Christians who are asking deeper and more substantive questions, such as, how do we represent Jesus well during a pandemic? How do we honor Jesus in the wake of George Floyd's murder or Breonna Taylor's killing and other high-profile acts of violence? How do we articulate and practice justice for all of God's creation? What does it mean to be a Christian at a time when the followers of Jesus are so divided, especially here in the USA and in a presidential election season? Oh, there are so many questions, and I commend you for striving to find answers, especially during this time. And as we try to find answers to life's persistent questions, let's remember that the journey is at least as important as the destination. This is to say that how we live as God's people day after day is more important than winning arguments or, or even electing our favorite candidates. We want God's kingdom to come, God's will to be done on earth, which impacts how we live right now. How we live as disciples, as believers, as followers, as members of God's household, as living stones, which is the way Peter will put it, matters more to God than your ability to recite the correct doctrinal statement. I believe that the message of 1 Peter addresses how we represent Jesus in a world that does not really know him. Now, in the USA, white Protestant evangelicals have enjoyed a degree of social hegemony, which is to say that they have had favored status. I mean, experts have made the point that for many people, being Christian and being American mean essentially the same thing. Nationality and religion, essentially the same. 
They cannot separate their citizenship from their faith. Pledging allegiance to the flag is the same as pledging allegiance to Jesus. At one seminary where I taught, I once had a student exclaim that soldiers who die in combat are martyrs. He was making military service for the nation equal to Christian discipleship. Now, Christian holidays are prominent in our society, and for a long time, people can make Bible references in almost any context outside of a church and expect that most people would understand the reference. There were so-called blue laws restricting certain activities. And white Christians were enjoying this social prominence, and right now, many of them are demonstrating considerable discomfort when their views do not take center stage. I mean, they don't know how to act when their way of being is... confronted with other notions of what it means to be Christian. And that challenge, to a large degree, is coming from people on the margins. So Peter here is writing to people who do not have the luxury of being prominent in society. Peter writes to people who are under scrutiny. Peter writes to people whose lives are in a precarious position. Peter's readers are not under official government persecution, but that will happen a few years down the road. But at the time of this letter, Peter's readers are facing hassles and slander, alienation, judgment, and social isolation because of their faith. His readers are suffering. One question that the letter of 1 Peter addresses is, how should Christians think and act within a culture that is hostile toward them? And 1 Peter addresses the lives of Christians who are being alienated by the broader culture. So let's see how he even opens the letter in just the first couple of verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. The first readers of this letter carried that status of alien, stranger, members of the dispersion or diaspora, a status that indicated their conflict with non-Christians. These people could not be at home in a world because the world was hostile to them. And that's the precarious situation of anyone on the margins. Sisters and brothers, the irony is that the message today deals with being followers of Jesus who don't deal with the pressure of the world in exactly the same way as unbelievers do. As followers of Jesus, we truly follow him as humble agents of change in a world that's hungry for love, for real love. Please follow along as I read the main passage for today. That's 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is a credit to you if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that... 
free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. My main idea today is that generally speaking, marginalized believers are the best teachers of what it means to be followers of Christ. Let me say that again. Generally speaking, marginalized believers are the best teachers of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Christian America, as divided as it is, as arrogant as it is, as theologically selective as it is, and as beloved by God that it surprisingly is, needs to learn from marginal Christian voices. What I'm saying is that we do not always see the way of Jesus in people who have a dominant role in society. But for some strange reason, we keep turning in that direction. We have to turn our heads and look in a different direction. We must see the way of Jesus in those on the margins. And when I say that phrase, the way of Jesus, I mean the values of the kingdom of God. I mean the way of love, loving God with one's whole being and loving neighbors as ourselves, loving neighbors, even enemies. The way of Jesus is in a set of propositions. And when I say, you know, alien and stranger and marginal believer, I'm talking about people who have traditionally been pushed aside by the world, yet they maintain their faith in Jesus. We must remember that Jesus said he came to set captives free, to give sight to the blind, to heal the brokenhearted, to usher in the jubilee. The apostle Paul would say Jesus makes all things new. The gospel should not be reduced to a set of ideas. The gospel isn't just something we read. The gospel isn't just something we hear or even something we sing. The gospel must also be seen. The gospel is a way of life that looks like the life of Jesus. And Jesus said that people would know that we are his disciples when they can see the love that we have for each other. Interestingly, so often in Scripture, that life of Jesus is best modeled by people on the margins. Look for Jesus among the ethnic and racial minorities. He is especially visible there. Look for Jesus among the immigrant population. The Lord is certainly visible there. Look for Jesus among women who so frequently have been devalued, objectified, and abused, but who remain consistent models of faith under fire, something that First Peter talks about. And even look to children to see the way of Jesus. Our Lord himself set children as an example for what the kingdom of God looks like. With all the health and wealth preaching that has been part of American Christianity, it might not move us to realize that followers of our faith risk their lives right from the very start. A great number of African Americans, for example, held to their faith despite all the ways that society conspired to eliminate them and their progeny. We must learn from marginalized believers. Now, we cannot make a simple comparison to life in ancient Rome to life in the 21st century. However, the civil rights movement taught us something about civil disobedience and how it could take the form of peaceful, nonviolent resistance. Sometimes I'm amazed at how our forebears would march, sit innocently at a lunch counter, and then take the violent abuse from our racist system. 
In so many cases, black people modeled upright, godly behavior, even while facing abuse. Sisters and brothers, I don't think it's wrong to protest. I mean, in scripture, we even see the apostle Paul getting in the face of the authorities and standing up for his rights as a Roman citizen. I don't think it's wrong to protest against evil. I would suggest, however, that based upon 1 Peter, our protest is made even, even stronger when we do our best to live upright and honorable lives. Believers on the margins of society know what it's like to face more scrutiny than the majority culture. We feel the eyes of the authorities staring at us or quick to pull us over. With our peripheral vision, we can see the store managers watching us from the moment we enter the, the building. We can feel in our bodies as our shoulders tense up and our stomachs ache the assumptions being made that we are criminal, we are stupid, we are lazy, or somehow deficient. I have had those feelings. And Peter's people were alienated from the mainstream. Alienated. Diaspora people are the ones who suffer. And when they are also people of faith, those oppressed believers can teach us what the New Testament sometimes calls, with a Greek word, hupomene, which we translate endurance or faithful perseverance. So here in these verses, 18 through 25, Peter is addressing enslaved Christians with some of the most difficult words in the New Testament for me. He tells these marginalized people, the most vulnerable of the vulnerable, to endure what their masters dish out. And this is hard. But Peter knows that if these people try to revolt, their lives will be taken. Peter is giving a strategy for survival. It's like the way many African-American parents instruct our children. Even when the police pull you over for no reason or, get, or you get singled out, do your best to survive. Driving while black is real. And our advice to our children is much like Peter's advice for these enslaved believers. In verse 19, Peter recognizes that their suffering is unjust. He calls it that. Slavery is not a just system. Discriminatory practices aren't just. And these Christians had no power to overthrow the system outright, but they could undermine it, undermine the system through, through radical faith and love. So consider enslaved Africans who were brought to what would become the United States of America. They were thrust into an environment heavily influenced by Christianity. I spoke with a professor friend who said that the abolitionists largely arose from among the simple, pious, holiness Christians, and not from those well-educated and wealthy Christians who were part of some of the oldest educational institutions in this country. Those well-educated, powerful, wealthy believers, the ones whose ministry is held in highest regard by many contemporary Christians, were the very ones using their Bibles to justify slavery and who owned other human beings themselves. Many enslaved within America, just like these slaves that Peter addresses, are among our best teachers when it comes to faithful perseverance. The spirituals were birthed by slaves as they came to connect their story to the biblical story. The spirituals grew out of this dynamic tension of living with faith in God who promises deliverance while simultaneously experiencing the slave master's whip. And although the spirituals were fundamentally work songs that provided some measure of relief from back-breaking labor, they also served to help build a measure of community. The spirituals helped the slaves to affirm that they were not defined by their work. Their identity was rooted in a spiritual reality that transcended their present circumstances. Presently, 
African-Americans when it comes to income, education, health, and other critical measures are still worse off than the dominant culture. Now, some in our society will blame African-Americans entirely for the disparities, but rational people should know better. We have a long legacy of persevering through suffering. And even though some people get annoyed when we say it, black lives matter to God, even when it doesn't feel like it on earth. And I'm here to say that slaves, yes, slaves, and the offspring of slaves demonstrate to us not weakness, but the way of Jesus. Enslaved people in Peter's day and also in America did not live and die in vain. Slaves did not suffer just to fill the pockets of the powerful. Slaves didn't feel the master's whip just to pick cotton and tobacco. Slaves didn't get raped and tortured simply to fulfill the dreams of white people. Slaves didn't have their families decimated to make America great. And I can't stop there. I won't let my forebears' suffering be their only legacy. I am saying that God has taken the misery of my forebears as well as the misery of some of Peter's readers to shame the powerful. He has taken the evil of human beings and turned it around on them. God has made it so that if we want to see Jesus, we don't look to the powerful, we look to the powerless. If we want to see Jesus, we even look to the enslaved. Now, while I wish there had never been slavery, what I will say is that those who suffered so horribly are among our best teachers. Make sure you see the connection that Peter is making in verses 21 to 23. The enslaved who hear Peter's letter, who follow his instructions, are in the blessed position of walking the way that Jesus walked. I'm saying that diaspora people, alien people, marginalized people demonstrate for us all the way of Jesus. And that demonstration comes in how marginalized people live upright lives and also how they faithfully endure through suffering. One of the things that made the civil rights movement effective was the abuse taken by innocent protesters who did not retaliate. Now, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. propagated the notion of nonviolent protests, and, and there are some who disagree with his approach, even still, but there are all others who look back on history, and they would note that his philosophy, which was at the heart of the movement, drove the changes that inched their way through the United States. The late Representative John Lewis, for example, in his memoir, Walking with the Wind, describes how the protest in Selma, Alabama on March 7, 1965, was especially impactful in catching the attention of the broader society. Lewis wrote this, ABC television cut into its Sunday night movie with a special bulletin. News anchor Frank Reynolds came on screen to tell viewers of a brutal clash that afternoon between state troopers and black protest marchers in Selma, Alabama. Then they showed 15 minutes of footage of the attack. The American public had already seen so much of this sort of thing. Countless images of beatings and dogs and cursing and hoses. But something about that day in Selma touched a nerve deeper than anything that had come before. People just couldn't believe that this was happening, not in America. Women and children being attacked by armed men on horseback. It was impossible to believe, but it happened. And the response from across the nation to what would go down in history as Bloody Sunday was immediate. Interestingly, often when I read that or recount those incidents, I have to let people know I was alive. I was a child when these things were happening. And often when I talk about the power of marginalized people, of our might from the margins, I mention my 
my late great aunt, Flossie Johnson, who I got to know during my years in DC. She was my grandmother's baby sister, and that was her nickname, baby sister. Aunt Flossie moved from rural South Carolina sometime in the 1930s with her big sister, Josie, that would be my grandmother, and Josie's daughter, Loetta, my mother, her only child. As Aunt Flossie said to me after the, after the movie The Help came out, and we talked about that a bit, she said, and these are her words, Dennis, don't you know all the females in your family did domestic work? Now, my mom did for a while before she became a licensed practical nurse. But I'll never know or understand the mess these women had to face. The verbal abuse they took, the segregation they faced, the humiliation of having to clean up other people's mess and the thankless task of cooking other people's meals and caring for other people's children. Then on top of that, to have to cook, clean, and care for their own families. I mean, what a burden these women carried for years upon years. I remember when she died, and I was at her funeral and participated in it. The one who gave the eulogy was a federal judge who had been appointed in the uh, in Maryland, nearby to D.C. He had been <laughs> a baby when my great-aunt um, met him <laughs> and wrapped him in his first blanket outside the hospital. He told the stories that many of us didn't know, stories from her childhood, stories that she sat and told him sitting on the stoop. She talked about faith and she talked about her fortitude and there the eulogist the judge he was able to tell us how my great aunt exemplified the the golden rule how she how she treated others the way she wished to be treated you know there are there are so many of us who could say that with all the junk these women and men had to face there is that legacy of great faith Many of us are here because those people held on to Jesus somehow. We have been taught that only the powerful in society can teach us anything, but oppressed and marginalized people are our most powerful teachers. If only we were ready to listen and learn. And 1 Peter is showing us that those who have been oppressed are the very ones who teach us the way of Christ because they live the way of Christ. So I'll tell you now, despite the need of a lot of Christians, especially some prominent evangelicals, to be visibly close to political power, I'd much rather hear the voice of an enslaved follower of Jesus than to hear the voice of some Christian leader who gets to hang around the president of the United States. Amen. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far on the way, thou who has by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path, we pray. May God honor the memory of those who suffered unjustly. And may we honor the legacy of those diaspora people, those in the dispersion, those aliens and strangers who suffered. But in their suffering, they show us the way of Jesus. May we go and do likewise. Let us pray. Lord, I give you thanks for who you are and for what you do. Lord, I thank you for those who are listening to this message that I did not get a chance to meet in person but I'm grateful for them and for Pastor Flowers who allowed me this opportunity to speak. But I ask, Lord God, broadly, beyond us, more broadly to all the congregations that are practicing and trying to live out the faith that we would pay close attention 
to messages like that in First Peter, that the very people we would overlook or minimize or slight or take for granted are the ones when clinging to Jesus, show us what real faith is about. And I pray, Lord God, that you would allow us to take heed, to listen, to watch, to absorb it, and to be transformed. So, Lord, I pray once again, giving thanks for who you are and for what you do. And I pray, Lord God, that your power, which is made perfect in weakness, would be evident to us. We give thanks. And we say amen.